can't hear me, just raise your hand. Uh, not accustomed to this mic. All right, thank you. Move it up a little bit. I recently read, well, it was about 10 years ago, I guess, a study that was completed in the United States with the conclusion that about 240 million people in this country claim to be Christians. I don't know if that's true or not today. That was a few years ago. But there are about 327 million people in the country today, and if the numbers are the same, that would be almost 75%, three-fourths of the people in the country claim to be Christians. That same study revealed that about one in four people felt that the Bible was the inspired Word of God. Many believe it's a fable or a storybook, uh, not to be interpreted literally, but only 25% believe that God is the author. The same study provided uh, the results of a multiple choice test given to people claiming to be Christians. Uh, here are a few of the answers coming from the Bible test written down as fact. The New Testament Gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, Luther, and John. A lot of people said that was a fact. Eve was created for, from an apple. Sodom and Gomorrah were a couple in Genesis who never married despite living over 900 years. That was a good fact. Uh, Galgotha was the name of a giant that slew the Apostle David. And finally, I've got 20 of them. I'll just read one more. The epistles were the wives of the apostles. <laughs> well, you get the picture. It's, it's funny, but it's a, it's a true story, and it's sad in a way. But we believe the Bible was written by men, but authored by God. Uh, it's inspired by God, and every word came from our, our Heavenly Father Himself. And that is why we stand out of respect for the Word of God when we read it. To get out of this passage today, or any passage really in the book, it, what God meant to say, we should look at the individual words written that were inspired by God in the original language, Greek in the New Testament, and not just study the concept. God does allow the personality of each writer to come out, his background, his experience. And as we read uh, chapter 13 in the book of John, the concept of the humility of love is written down by John as he was inspired by God. John is the disciple that Jesus loved by John's own description. And he talks about the love of Jesus as a theme throughout the book as well. And as we look at chapter 13, John writes down this picture or demonstration of love and caring for his disciples. We see the humility of love in the passage. In the opening chapter of the book of John, 1 John, or John chapter 1, uh, it says, it's talking about two reactions of the presentation of Jesus Christ. In verse 11 of the first chapter, the nation of Israel would not believe. Verse 11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. However, in the next verse, verse 12, it says, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So the nation of Israel as a whole would not believe, but a few would. And they would become the children of God, and the disciples are included in this. So from chapter 13 through chapter 17, Jesus is conveying his love. It's a record of Jesus conveying his love to his disciples. He's preparing them for, his, for their work. He's preparing them for their work, and he's demonstrating how much he cares for them by washing their feet. 
In chapter 14, he leaves them a promise of eternal life in heaven. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it wasn't so, I'd have told you about it. I'm going to prepare a place for you. In chapter 15, he says, I'm the way, I'm the true vine. He says uh, that when he leaves, he promises the Holy Spirit will guide them. In chapter 17, he gives a high priestly prayer. He prays for the disciples. He prays for himself. In chapter 18 and 19, of course, he dies on the cross to... uh, pay for their sins and to pay for our sins. So the setting is the Last Supper in the upper room on Thursday night. Jesus knew that the cross was imminent. It was at hand. He could have been preoccupied with these thoughts. His human mind must have been full with the thoughts of the most important events in history. The cross the next day, his resurrection three days after that. He would ascend to the Father. Verse 3 says he's returning to God to be exalted. But instead of that, he now stoops to the most humble act possible to demonstrate his love for these 12 men who would hide in fear the next day. Peter would say he didn't even know him. He's going to wash the feet of his disciples, one of the most humiliating acts imaginable to the people of that day, the very opposite of pride. He could have put himself over this. He could have avoided all this, but instead he reached down to the depths of humility. It's the extreme example of love. To wash the feet of someone was the duty of a slave in those days. Uh, Not even a servant, but a slave below the servant on the social class. Uh, When a Jewish rabbi had disciples, they they became his servants, but they would never uh, go as low as washing the feet of other people. And that was a job for slaves only, and specifically Gentile slaves. Even a Jewish slave did not wash feet. So by Jesus undertaking this menial task, it has real significance theologically and ethically. Uh, It's the lowest rung on the social scale. I think sometimes we miss the depth of the teaching and acts of Jesus because we're not accustomed to the culture and uh, and the extent of what this means. Uh, We're not exposed to foot washing. We don't see that every day. Washing people's feet, we don't don't understand. But... uh, I'm I'm taking some of these thoughts from John MacArthur, a well-known national pastor, but I wanted to use an illustration that he uses uh, that that might help us understand a little more. John said that in in 2003, the U.S. Army helped Iraq overthrow Saddam Hussein. You remember uh, there was a 40-foot statue in Baghdad, and as uh, the regime was overthrown, the U.S. Marines pulled that statue down. It was a cylinder type of thing, and they hooked it up on the back of a truck or a tank or something and drug it around the streets of Baghdad. And as they did that, little children hopped on it and rode it around like a sled. But the interesting thing was adults came, off, came around and took their shoes and sandals off and pounded the head of that statue. And I thought, I saw it on the world news, and I thought, what in the world are they doing? Why are they doing that? Well, to... Uh, beat the head or the image of someone with a sandal in the Iraq uh, culture was to show the lowest amount of contempt for that, the deepest contempt for that person. It's extreme disrespect. I didn't know that, uh, but it might help us understand the depth of lowliness which, to which Jesus stooped in, in washing the dirty feet of his disciples. It's a dirty job. It's a job for a Gentile slave. So Jesus is totally focused here on his love for the disciples. The motive for all this is his love and his care for them. And his love is revealed in humility because he reaches down. 
And in humility, he ultimately dies for them and for all of us. He would die on a cross for any one of us if if we were the only person in the world. He loves us that much. So verse 1 of chapter 13 reflects the extent of his love. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. You look at the Greek words there, the full extent means he loved them to perfection. He loved them to the highest degree, to the nth degree, the most possible. It's a full love. Another translation says he loved them to the end. It's the nature of Jesus to love utterly. He loves them, he loves us greater than we love our children and grandchildren, if that can be imagined. It's to the nth degree. So Jesus conveys his love in the best possible way that love can be seen by the disciples, and that's in humility. It's how love can be made visible. Now, I want to give you another illustration, a personal illustration. It's, probably, it's not a good one. I'll tell you at the end why. <laughs> but uh, when I finished college, I went uh, into the military, and I was a second lieutenant in ammunitions in the Ordnance Corps. And I was very fortunate. I had an opportunity to be involved in the Army sports program out of Washington, D.C., the all-Army sports program. And I was on the Army wrestling team, and we'd travel around and enter tournaments. And one of my teammates was a friend of mine, he was uh, uh, also a lieutenant in the infantry. He was an all-American wrestler at the University of Illinois. And his passion was to, when he was discharged from the Army, was to minister to uh, young high school boys who were in economically distressed areas of Chicago. He was from Chicago. So he was discharged about a year before me. And uh, he went to Chicago, and he went to a boys' club, and he set up this program, and he did how he solicited these guys is another story I won't go into, but he got these, these uh, guys in that were destined for gangs and had very little hope for the future. And they lived on the streets. Some of them lived on the streets. Some of them had no parents. And so they were really, uh, they were really tough guys, but they were good athletes. And so he got them in, and, and we stayed in touch with him, either by telephone or mainly through letters. We wrote letters. Remember the day we wrote letters? few years ago, we didn't have email, letters were slow, but we, we stayed in touch with him, and things didn't go well. These guys were gifted athletically, they had natural ability, but they had, their culture was no uh, dependability. They were unreliable completely. They didn't show up when they were supposed to, and so they came in, and things just didn't go well, and, and Evan, my friend, tried different tactics. He got a small business to buy them uniforms. They had nice, crisp uniforms, and they looked good. He got a youth pastor at a church to loan them the bus to pick them up, but of course that didn't work because they never were where they were supposed to be. They were completely unreliable. He even had a grocery store donate food a couple of times, but nothing seemed to work. He rocked along for a couple of months, and we stayed in touch. And then finally one day we got in the mail a letter, and, and we opened that letter, and we hadn't heard from him for a few weeks, and he said, I finally have broken through. I have their confidence. I'm one of them. They trust me now. They didn't trust me before, but they trust me now. And he went over. We turned the page on the seconds page about halfway down. There it was. He said, Thursday night, two weeks ago, I ate garbage for dinner. And it turns out he described it in the letter. He went out and he, uh, these guys took him to a restaurant where they'd thrown away some food and table scraps, if you can imagine. He sat down with these guys and ate with them. And he said as they passed around this water bottle, no telling what was in it, but it was a water bottle. And he said they were passing that around to drink from. And he said as it came to me, I knew I couldn't hesitate. If I hesitated, I would have lost it all. 
So he said, I took that and drank that out of it immediately and even stuck it down my throat just to show him. He said from that day on, he proved he was one of them. It was the key to winning them over. In his humility, he demonstrated his love for them. And he won them over by humbling himself. And he was finally one of them. And he had a big influence on their lives. And actually, one of those guys ultimately went to college, actually. But, but uh, this is not a good illustration, you see, because he just went to their level. Jesus put himself on a level far lower than the disciples. He put himself on the bottom. And he washed their feet. And he did that to prepare them for the cross because he would be humiliated in the, in the cross, and, and he had to prepare his disciples. So it's not a good illustration, but you can visualize it. And, it, and it's, uh, Evan could have told those guys every day that he loved them and he cared about them, he wanted, but they wouldn't have believed him. They wouldn't have believed him until he became one of them. So the scene is the Passover is at hand. The annual Passover is Thursday night. It's the last significant Passover because after this, it would be the Lord's Supper. There'd be a new covenant. But uh, Jesus is the lamb that dies this time. And all the Jews were gathered in Jerusalem. We're told there's over two million people. And in the middle of all this, uh, they, had, they had started the feast in the upper room. In the middle of that, uh, the, rejection of Jesus, uh, the rejection of Jesus by Judas is, is presented in verse 2. And Judah, Judas rejected the supreme love of Jesus here and the Holy Spirit probably puts this part in this this chapter to con- contrast the rejection of Judas to the love of Christ. The Holy Spirit wants us to grasp the magnitude of the love of Jesus, because you see, He washes the feet of Judas also. He includes Judas. So in verse three, we see that everything belongs to Jesus. It says that the, Jesus knew the Father had put all things under His power. Jesus was in control and he knew it. He possesses all. And so he's exalted in verse 3. And that makes the picture of his humility all the more visible to us. Jesus would return to the Father. So the the disciples are gathered in this upper room. They probably walked in from Bethany. Their feet would be very dirty. Uh, Streets were not paved. They were either dusty or they were muddy. And so it's not a pleasant task. Every home had jars of water to wash feet, but it's, it's not something everybody's jumping to do, and there are no slaves in the upper room, and one of the twelve really should have done it, but they were selfish. Now, what were they doing during this time? Well, if you look back at Luke in chapter 22, verse 24, we find they were arguing over which one of them should be considered as the greatest. The twelve arrive, and they argue about who gets the highest seat in the kingdom. Foot washing is not on their mind. Uh, so the water, the basin, and the towel are there, but no one moves to wash the feet. Why? Because they're arguing. Jesus waits until they sit down and begin to eat, and then he acts in verses 4 and 5. The disciples are not about to act. They're not even thinking about it. Jesus rises, arises from supper. He gets the towel, pours the water, calmly removes his outer robe, and begins to wash their feet like a slave. This is a big surprise. This is a huge shock. You know, every time Jesus interacts with people in the Gospels, there's some surprise. He does things nobody else would do. He's constantly surprising those around him with his acts of love. He does the same thing with us. We pray to him and ask him, and we are surprised when he answers. I think of the leper in Mark 1 at the end of the chapter, about verse 40, uh, 
this man is covered with leprosy, and he comes up to Jesus. And uh, whenever the leper went out in public, he was required to wave his arms and, loud, and shoutly loud, uh, shout very loudly, unclean, unclean. There's probably nobody within two miles of this guy except Jesus. And so he comes up to Jesus, begging him to be cured. He says, if you're willing, if you want to, you can heal me. If you want to, if you're willing. Jesus demonstrates his love for this man. He says, of course I want to help you. Of course I do. I am willing. And then he does an amazing thing. He reaches down and he puts his hand on the leper. He touches the leper. Maybe no one had touched these guys in years. It's the same for us. It's a big surprise. Jesus surprises us. He reaches out and he touches us. You know, touching the leper is better than a sermon on love. It's a demonstration of love. And Jesus, assuming the role of a, st- of a slave is better than a lecture on humility. I'm not very good at humility. I want people to know how important I am. Have you seen my list of achievements? Uh, we, we Christians often stand on our own dignity rather than kneeling at the feet of others. And I'm right there. I'm not very good at it. But we have to show humility to give service in Christ or service for this church. Humility is the key. Jesus gets to uh, Peter in verse 6. And Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet like everybody else's? No, not my feet. Jesus says, you don't understand now, but you will later in verse 7. In verse 8, Peter gives the, he just adamantly says no. He gives the strongest word in the Greek language he can for the word no. He says, never, no, not me. And he shouts. Jesus informs Peter that unless he washes their feet, you're no part of me. So be obedient, Peter. Be obedient. And then Peter, old Peter, he switches to the other extreme. He says, okay, if you're going to wash my feet, wash my hands and my head my whole body. Just wash me all over. Jesus reminds him, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean if he washes his feet. In those times when a person took a bath, he was clean until he walked outside in the roads and his feet became dirty. But he could keep the rest of his body clean, but his feet became dirty quickly. So Jesus told Peter, when I wash your feet, I make you clean all over. Because one touch of the cleansing power of Christ cleans us from all sin forever. Once you've been cleansed, once you've been bathed by the word of Christ and you believe it, all God has to do is not bathe you all over again, just wipe the dust off your feet. We're here this morning getting our feet dusted off because... You're entirely clean already. You gather a little dust on life's journey, but you only need to get bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ one time to be saved. So Jesus told told Peter, when I wash your feet, I make you clean all over. So this example of humiliation was necessary so the disciples could better accept the cross where Jesus would be completely humiliated. They had to to understand that Jesus came to be humiliated for our sins. Now, some Christian denominations throughout church history and even today had taken this scripture to mean uh, that they should establish a sacrament called foot washing. And and that's okay, uh, similar to the sacrament of communion. Uh, It's okay to do that. There's nothing wrong with it. But it seems that Jesus was not really instituting a sacrament here that was to be repeated on a regular basis among believers. 
We don't think that Jesus was instituting a new ordinance, uh, baptism, communion, foot washing. And the key to that is in verse 15. Jesus says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. The word as there in Greek is kathos. It means like as. Do similarly. Don't do the same thing. Do similarly. If it was a direct example, the word would be something else, which means that which. Jesus said, I want you to do like as I have done or similar to what I've done. Live in a humble way. Not... I have given you an example, you should do that which I have done for you. He's not saying the same, he's not saying do the same thing, but he's saying do it in the same manner, show humility. Jesus isn't saying uh, wash feet uh, in this manner, you know, start with a big toe and go down the left side. It's not the book of church order, the method, (laughs) but uh, just live your life in a similar humble way showing love. But it's okay to have these foot washing ceremonies and a lot of churches do. In verses 12 through 14, it's time for them to learn the lesson. The disciples need to start operating on the basis of humility. This is the real purpose. In order to serve the Lord, he tells the disciples to be humble. In verse 14, he says, if I am Lord and I wash your feet, then you should know now to wash each other's feet. Act in a similar manner. God has given them the example, and he's given us the example. So do as I have done. So, if we really want to serve, and we want to be blessed, learn how to serve in a humble way. Verse 17, Christ promises us, if we serve in a humble way, we will be blessed. That's what that verse says. People will know we belong to Jesus when we show this kind of love to each other and others outside our church. The outside world cannot hear what we're saying until we begin with humility. They can't see our caring without observing it in our actions here at Parkway Church. So Jesus promises in verse 17 that if we want to be blessed by the Lord, we must learn how to serve others and to serve our church here with humility. Let's uh, pray to close, bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson on humility where your son stooped so low just before his crucifixion. We, We thank you for this wonderful example of love of Jesus. We pray, Lord, not to be prideful. Lord, break us to be your servants, to get in an attitude of humility. We know, Father, this will lead us to be your servants. We pray for Parkway, Lord, that you will guide us to where you would have us go. Be with each person here today, Lord, and in the coming week. And in his holy name we pray, amen.